good evening everyone. I'd just like to welcome you all here this evening. Uh, I'm John Lawson, I'm a senior class faculty in the primary care CTU and is along with Lee coordinating the clinical um, statistics for clinical trials module this week. I'd like to welcome Professor David Ferguson. Sorry, it's just like being next to each other in offices for about five years, she still can't remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was thinking, I'm right, I've not been in the um, Anyway, yeah, David Ferguson is here tonight to give us a really uh, interesting talk about selecting bias and cluster randomised trials. Uh, David and I first uh, met in Aberdeen. Uh, David then worked as a health economist in the health services and health economics research units. Um, and then he moved to York uh, in the Centre for Economics, and then he moved to be director of the York Clinical Trials Unit. Um, he, so he's a methodologist now, rather than a health economist, that's what he's called himself. Everybody needs a sign relief for that. <laughs> <laughs> so this talk will be on the methodologies and specifically on trials and selection bias. So thanks okay. very much for coming. Thanks very much. <laughs> okay, um, Jill said I'm going to talk about selection bias that occurs in a significant proportion of cluster randomized controlled trials and finish with some ways of trying to prevent this. But before I do, I, I'll remind us what happens in individually randomized trials and why um, been a we know there's been a problem in individually randomized trials for many years that there's a potential that the randomization can be subverted. And we try and prevent this by ensuring that the randomization is concealed uh, as third party to avoid this uh, problem of selection bias. Um, so I'll give you some illustra illustration of where this need to try and um, do secure randomization came from. And this is a classic paper by Kenneth Schultz and colleagues back in the mid-1990s when they did a meta-analysis and looked at the effect sizes of trials by their allocation concealment status. And so um, you can see that here, the inadequate randomized trials, which they deem as people not having public access to the allocation um, list, showed about a 41% increase in effect size compared with the adequate method of, of randomization. And the Schultz at that time can said that the inadequate method of randomization was to use opaque concealed envelopes, which is still used in about 10 to 20% of randomized control trials, still use opaque sealed envelopes, which are absolutely pointless. If you ever see a trial that uses sealed opaque envelopes, it doesn't matter whether they're numbered or not, the trial's useless, just ignore it. And <coughs> this is a case study that Joe and I happened at, uh, when we were both in Aberdeen. This is a large randomized control trial that would cost the taxpayer over a million pounds at, in 1990s money, and that was when a million pounds was really worth something. And we, after about 200 patients, um, we found it to be subverted. And at the time, there was five or more centres, and what happened was that the clinician um, would approach a patient, get their consent to take part in the study, and they had a box of, of sealed, numbered sealed of the envelopes. And what they were supposed to do was take the top envelope and and open, uh, open the envelope, and within the envelope would be the allocation of whether the person would get open surgery or laparoscopic surgery. The statistician at the time, after about 200 patients, was doing some data cleaning and, and, and such like, 
and for some reason he compared the two treatment groups and their overall age. And you can see the experimental group was on average four years younger than the control group, which obviously shouldn't happen because of randomization. And then what he did was he did it by centre. And you can see, if you take a look at centre four, for example, the average age of experimental patients was 33 years compared with 69 of control group. Now, you don't need to spend five years at medical school to work out that if you're 33, your outcome is going to be a hell of a lot better than if you're 69. And so how did they do it? This is one of the centres, and the numbers, uh, the, the numbers were envelope, uh, the, the envelopes were numbered, so like the person who the fifth envelope should get the fifth patient recruited. So there should be a perfect correlation between the patient centre number recruited and the envelope sequence. And in this particular centre, you can see until about envelope number 12, there's this perfect correlation. But after, once we get beyond that, what they were doing was opening envelopes in advance. So if you look at, say, um, patient number 20, envelope number 26, they were recruited, they were patient number two recruited. So they were opening envelopes in advance and then putting the younger patients. So centre five, for example, was putting all men under the age of 40 in the intervention group and all men over the age of 40 in the control group. And so that was uh, completely biasing. <clears throat> a colleague of mine who did a PhD in this area, Catherine Hewitt, what she did was um, took um, all the randomised controlled trials that were published in one year in the, British in the main medical journal, British Medical Journal, JAN, and New England, uh, journal, etc., and classed them as inadequate or adequate. And she classed inadequate concealment as using opaque envelopes. So, 99% of the trials she classed as being inadequate all used opaque sealed envelopes. Adequate ones were that used a web based or telephone randomization where it's difficult. And she basically found the average p value for those trials that used envelopes the p-value is 0.02 compared with just got over 0.05 for um, those that will use adequate trials. So this is the plot of the, the studies. You can see the... Um, so if you can see the, un, uh, inadequate, the adequate ones, uh, the dark line there, you can see, and this is uh, here, 5%. You see about half the trials are statistically significant and half are not, which is about what you would expect. If you, but if you look at the uh, inadequate ones, the, the uh, orangey line, you can see a significantly more trials there are, that are um, statistically significant com compared with the, the adequately concealed ones. Now, the only reasonable assumption that's happening here is that people, the envelopes are being opened in advance or people are, are filling that allocation. Because I can't think of any reason why people who choose to use sealed opaque envelopes to, got, to conceal the allocation are able to pick interventions that are more likely to succeed than people who use more secure methods. It doesn't make sense. This is a um, master's student What she did was um, took a dozen systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials and uh, they're all published in BMJ, JAMA, and that lot in 2012 and so. And then what she did was extracted the data from all the, the component trials of systematic review. So the first one, had, she got I get the 10 papers. And then what she did was that she did a meta-analysis of, of age between the two groups. Well, the, the age should be what you should get. If you do a meta-analysis of age in randomized controlled trials, you should get 
zero heterogeneity because the null is true. We know, we know the difference between the groups is true, which is no age difference through randomization. So we should get no heterogeneity. And also, we should get no difference between the two groups. So if you look at the first one, heterogeneity by the iceberg value is, is enormous, 84%. There is a difference in age, a significant difference in age. That's less important than the heterogeneity. In fact, if you look at the heterogeneity of all these studies, um, they're all hideous. Um, and, and it's the only last four trials that are showing zero heterogeneity, last four meta-analyses that are showing zero heterogeneity. So all those meta-analyses contain trials where the allocations have been subverted that's affecting baseline age. And even of those four, one of them is an age imbalance. So this particular trial there is populated by a host of fiddle trials. So, yeah. So that's a, a, a really big problem. So this problem in individually randomized trials is really quite widespread. It's damaging meta-analyses. Um, this is a, a trial where, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I read the main medical journals with these trials in them, mainly just to sort of pick it, you know, to, to pick out the irritating ones that irritate me. Um, and this is what this was one a long time. Yeah, this is a block randomised study. Four patients for each block with separate randomisation between the three centres. Blocks of four cards are produced, each containing two cards marked with house officer or with nurse. Each card was placed into an opaque envelope and sealed. The block was shuffled, and after shuffling, the block was placed in a box. So what? This is the trial with problem. Don't worry if you don't get it, because the, the, the statistician on this trial didn't, didn't observe it either. The editor of the, the journal didn't, and the BMJ didn't see it, and neither did the statistical editor didn't see it either. But it's blindingly bloody obvious that when you, when you actually... It's block randomization, block of four stratified by site, so that imbalance can only be half the block size. So we've got dodgy business going on Southampton and Sheffield, haven't we? We can't, it's impossible, arithmetically impossible for that to happen. Naturally, I wrote to the lead author who ignored me, and I wrote to the statistician on the paper as well on the basis that the lead author sometimes ignores you because they think it's something to do with statistics, so they'll ignore it. I wrote to the statistician, they ignored me as well. So, because um, so, there might be a reasonable explanation for that, I can understand what is a reasonable explanation there. Okay, that's a long time ago, does this still happen? This is the largest trial in this area, and it's published in New England Medicine. I'm a bit bitter with New England Journal of Medicine because those bastards have never published anything I've ever sent to them. But they've published this complete quaddle. So what did they have? So they randomised 450 women, um, oh no, more than that, eight, oh, eight, 900 women to um, undergraduate students to an intervention to try and prevent them um, reduce their risk of having been sexually assaulted when in the first year at university. And the intervention clearly appears it worked. So in the uh, intervention group, 5% uh, were raped compared with nearly 10% in the control group. So halving of the intervention. Um, and then, so what's the problem? There are three signs. Randomization is performed in permanent blocks of two with the use of online tool randomization net with stratification according to science. 452 were assigned to control group and 464 to the intervention resistance group. See the problem? Come on, remember, don't worry if you don't. There's statistician, couldn't see it in the journal, but 
So you've got, you've got what is it? Um, three sites, block size of two, specified by site. The intervention, you can only be imbalanced by half the block size, which is one. So you can only possibly be imbalanced across the whole trial by three participants, kind of. I mean, I've only got O level maths, but surely, you know, that's right, isn't it? Three sites times two, um, half, I mean, half of two is one, three times one is three. Anyway, so 452 assigned to the control group and 464 to the distance group. So that isn't three, isn't it? It's, what is it, 12. Anyway, I did write the journal. I mean, actually, take it back. The New England Journal of Medicine has published something about me. They've published my letter about this trial. Um, and so give them their due about that. They did, um, they did publish it. Um, and they, the authors responded by saying ten, there were 10 that were randomised in error because they had um, people misspell, you know, so irritatingly my name gets misspelled quite a lot. People drop the middle R in the name called me Torgerson or something, Torgerson, which Jill nearly did. Um, and so you can imagine if somebody with Torgerson in the, in the name, would, might, somebody would have written it down Torgerson and somebody else would have written down Torgerson and then they thought there were two different people and randomised them twice. It's funny that, that all ten ended up in one group. I don't know what the statistical probability is of, uh, of that happening is pretty remote, but anyway, we'll let that pass. So we know individual randomised trials a huge proportion of are subverted um, because they were using small block sizes um, and um, and envelopes. And uh, so, what about cluster randomisation? Now, cluster randomisation. Just to remind everybody what it is, we've got two units here. The unit of allocation. Is something like a hospital or GP practice, it might be a school, it might be a block of time or village. And people in that, then you've got the individuals who are associated with that cluster that get allocated uh, to, to the treatment or not. And so the so you randomise your cluster, your GP practice, and then the unit of assessment, the outcome assessment, is on the, on the uh, usually on the patient, the individual patient that's associated with that cluster. Um, and so We've got two elements. We, we've got potential bias in the actual randomization of the clusters, which is the same as the, that can happen for uh, individually randomized controlled trials. Then, um, but we can sort that out. That's straightforward to sort out. But the next problem occurs, which is less tractable, is what happens if you have to recruit the participants after you've randomized. So, um, Selection bias creeps in, so you've randomised your clusters. If you, so long as you've done that properly by an independent person, you, you've got balance about uh, across the two groups. We're, we're all happy and dandy there. Then what really happens, how the selection occurs, is when the, you start recruiting the patients after you randomise, because just as individual randomisation is subverted because people know the allocation in advance, so is cluster because you have two people who know the allocation in advance. You know that the clinician knows the allocation, who can then select patients to go in for some reason, or or you can have the patient and the patient knows the cluster allocation, so they can volunteer to go in the study, differentially between the two groups. So you get cluster bias. The first time I sort of twigged this was back in the 90s when I first moved from Aberdeen to York. I, was the health economist on a large randomised trial of back pain for the UK Beanstead. And we would, had done a pilot trial, so it was a really complicated design. So um, 
my ex-boss um, from Aberdeen had followed me down to York, so I was working with him again. And so he loved having really complicated designs. And this was a, the initial design for this trial was a cluster randomized split plot design. And um, so we did a, um, a pilot before we launched the main trial to check that the, the complicated design would work. So we randomized, so I'll just show you what happened. Um, there were 26 practices, there was some kind of stratification for randomization and balance on the, the number of uh, registered patients. Um, the, inter in the intervention group then received training, active management, so the, the, the GPs and practice managers would receive some training on how to manage patients with low back pain, basically to try and get them to be mobile as much as possible because um, lying in bed makes your back pain more chronic, like that's make it chronic. So we train those, and it's almost obvious in hindsight what would happen. So you're training these GPs about back pain, identifying patients with back pain, and hey, presto, that's what they do. They identify a lot more patients than the, the usual care group that are following their usual practice. So they're recruiting more than two to three times more patients than the uh, control group. And then when you looked at the baseline values, like Roland and Morris Disability Score, Aberdeen Back Pain Scale, and SF36, you can see what well, higher scores of those two is worse, and uh, uh, lower score is worse there. So you can see um, the outcome, the main outcome would be the Roland and Morris score. So the, the patients, even before they have a chance to get any kind of advice and treatment, their, their back pain scores are significantly worse. So we had to abandon that trial because it was... Um, it, it was hopeful. So we, fortunately, we'd done a pilot, so we just then moved on without the cluster element to the study. Um, this is the, the recruitment graph that we, that we saw. You know, so the interventions are blue, and we can see that all the way through there's like a double uh, number of recruitment. The, the, good, the only good thing about this, this pilot study is it shows that if you teach, if you train GPs about a clinical condition, they will recruit more for you. So if you want to do, if you're doing a randomised trial in primary care and you want to enhance recruitment, train the GPs and they will recruit a lot more. Um, so um, I wrote a paper about, partly about this, um, and suggesting that we should avoid cluster randomization at all costs. And so what I recommended there is that we should try and do um, individual randomization um, if at all possible um, and, and, and even if you've got some contamination and I still hold that view uh, and if you've got contamination that goes up to 30% it's still more cost, cost effective to do that individual randomization than cluster. Okay, so in 2002 I inherited the trials unit at York and um, one of the trials that was being done at that time was an MRC-funded trial for uh, a cluster randomized controlled trial. And what they wanted to do was, um, it was shoulder pain. And they were going to recruit patients with shoulder Randomize the general practices, train the GPs, and then recruit the patients, GPs recruit the patients with shoulder pain, and then we would look at the outcome of training on the GPs, um, uh, on the patient's outcomes to see if they got better outcomes if patients if GPs have been trained to deal with uh, shoulder problems. And so when I joined it, I said, 
Well, we really need to change the design now. The, the design trials in the setup phase. We need to change the design here because this will be catastrophic. So when I joined it, it was before the trial started way about there, and I, I was neither a co-applicant and I wasn't the chief. I said I wasn't the chief investigator, and I couldn't persuade anybody else that we needed to change tack here. So we had a first um, trial steering committee. Steering group, steering committee, steering committee meeting um, early on in the trial. And so at this point, we could see um, we had doubled in the trained, patient, uh, trained GPs, so we were putting double the numbers of patients. So at this point, I said, Look, I know, I was, you, know you, you thought I might be wrong. Uh, um, I don't know, I, I, I think I need some psychology help there because I think. Um, you shouldn't ever, if, if somebody's doing something that's catastrophic and you've warned them against doing it, I think it, it's probably problematic to tell them, I told you so. You're supposed to say, you know, you're not supposed to crow over them that you're doing it wrong. But I think, um, I didn't do that. I crowed over them. So, yes, you've got it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Um, so they, and they had an external, I'll just have a quick look around, check the person from the audience, they're not in the audience. They had an external statistician there who said, whose clinching argument was that difference isn't statistically significant. My account to that was that I, I told the story of the, of the um, jumbo jet that flew over Indonesia in the mid-70s and when the volcano was going off and it flew, it flew through volcano ash and all four engines were conked out. So this is the analogy. So you're passing said aeroplane, you're at 50,000 feet, all the engines have shut down. And the co-pilot comes on and says, we've um, had a little problem, all our engines have lost power. But don't worry, we've lost a thousand feet, but that's not aeronautically significant. My view, if I was a passenger, is that in about half an hour to an hour, it's going to become bloody aeronautically significant, unless somebody gets one, at least one of the engines restarted. Fortunately, they got three of them restarted and one to stay. But, so I was saying that, yeah, it's not, it may not be statistically significant, but it's going to be if we carry on. And we carry on. And, yeah. it's, it's natural, it? Naturally, I said, I told you so back then. I really, really did tell you so. At this point, it's, almost, it's too late now. We nearly finished the trial. Ah, so that's discussing. So um, at, at the point um, this was going on, they said, we need more evidence. This, you know, you go on about UK beans. Um, that's just probably a one-off. So a group was got together to try and prove that this is a, a major problem. So we did a, um, a systematic uh, a review of um, all trust trials published in the BMJ Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, for five years from January 97 to October 2002. And so what did we find? We found that of the first six cluster trials, about 40% were showing that evidence of selection bias could tell by imbalances in their recruitment rates or in covariate imbalances are uh, uh, based on covariate imbalances. And in fact, that's an underestimate because we came across another trial that published a secondary paper uh, after they'd published the trial, their paper in the Lancet, uh, after we published this, that um, demonstrated data and admitted they had selection bias. So 40% is actually underestimate. But, you know, those, those data are a long, long time ago, and say so the past of the foreign countries, 
actually do things differently. I've changed in two um, since this, this happened. Unfortunately, not. So, again, we looked at some cluster files that were published in 2008, uh, another set, and where are we? Yes, uh, about a third of them, of 24 trials. A third of them showed recruitment bias was possible. Five of those eight had clear evidence in the in the paper that was there was recruitment bias. Another MSC student, Jamie Bolson, looked at it, more recent cluster trials, um, and again she found huge problems. So um, of the 23 trials she looked at, about 48% uh, were high risk of selection bias. Now, something else she did was what I showed you before in an individually randomized trial. She did um, looked at the heterogeneity of the randomized trial. So again, she extracted all the baseline age of, of, the, the, of these 23 cluster trials and then looked to see if there were baseline imbalances in what the heterogeneity was. As you can see, we have um, one, two, three, four, five. Seven cluster trials where there's a statistically significant imbalance in age. And the heterogeneity, look at heterogeneity, 93%. Now, remember, and these, these are corrected for, for clustering. Remember, we're looking at um, um, an imbalance. The, the, the null is true here, there should be no difference. So there should all be the differences. You might get an individual trial that's statistically uh, that's imbalanced. It may even be statistically significantly imbalanced by chance. But you wouldn't expect there to be heterogeneity here. So if you, if this is what you should be seeing. This is, these are individually randomized trials that were mapped to these are individually randomized trials taken from the same journal um, at uh, generally from the same issue. Uh, um, so they're probably at the same time, and this is what you get if you do a meta-analysis of individually randomized trials. Um, this is what you expect to see. I squared is 0%. Uh, we have a, a tiny, tiny difference, which is nowhere near statistically significant. We have, what, two trials that have statistically significant imbalances in age. One goes one way, the other goes the other way, which is about what you sort of expect. Um, so this is what... This is the difference we would hope to see if we'd done it for cluster trials, but we're not doing it for cluster trials. Uh, we're doing it for individually randomized trials. Uh, oh, yeah, and we have a, an appalling situation. I'll go through a, another case study. This was published a couple of years ago. It got a lot of, it got a lot of press attention. Um, I was alerted to it. New scientists contacting us for me to ask them to comment on it um, before it's published. And I gave the new scientist a journalist saying how awful it was. And she didn't publish that, unfortunately. She just she published, she gave a, a, a synopsis of the trial and said there was some controversy about it. Well, the controversy was just me ranting for an hour and over the phone. So this is. Um, this is to stop, try and stop teenage girls getting pregnant. So you are, they're randomised to schools um, to have um, identified, I think about these teenagers, about 15, and they get randomised to get a, um, a, a baby simulator. So they go home for a weekend with a baby that cries at regular intervals, keeps you up all night, 
has to be changed and fed or it's housed and you know, anybody who's had the baby knows exactly what a, a, a small child is like and so the, the, the horror of, of, of this is supposed to put the, the, the mothers uh, the potential of the, the young women off getting themselves pregnant now what does it show? it shows a, a statistically significant difference you know, hazards ratio 1.25, but it actually shows that the risk of getting uh, uh, pregnant in the intervention group was double the risk of the control group. So the, the birth 8% uh, were, were got preg uh, had a, a baby compared to 4% in the control group. And they did all lots of fancy statistics, very terrible p-values set up, these p-values showing the, the differences I don't know what a blog binomial model is, but anyway, we did it. <coughs> Cox proportional hat, all, all that. And it's all, you know, look, at, it's highly statistically significant. But do we believe it? Don't believe a word of it. It's just, you know, statistics are meaningless if you've got awful data. And this is awful data. This is, this is selection bias on a massive scale. What does the NHS think about it? The NHS think it's. Um, we say baby doll stimulus may actually increase teen pregnancy rates. So if you go on NHS choices, you'll find that. They say um, this trial has a good study design and a suitable sample size. Uh, the statisticians in the audience, if you want to go to that paper, do the sample size calculation. They've got that wrong, actually. But that's a minor problem. They've got the sample size calculation actually wrong. Uh, I mean, I tend to look, because I, I sample size calculations are really easy. That's why I do them. So I, I tend, if I'm not looking at a paper, I tend to quickly do them. Because if the sample size, if you can't get the sample size calculations wrong, which is right, which is a piece of cake, you can do it in your head, can't just about. It can if it's continuous. But um, they, if they don't get that right, you know they're not going to get anything else right. So, um, okay, this is, this is a good study design and a, and a suitable sample size. So there we have it. They think it's, so I went to, I decided to look for higher sort and more authoritative authoritative source of evidence base and so I naturally turned to the Daily Mail. <laughs> so the Daily Mail, life like baby dolls designed to prepare teenagers from having children actually raised pregnancy rates. Quote the attention the researchers say the attention given to girls when they were looking after the, uh, the dolls encouraged them to have a baby. No it doesn't. Because the trial doesn't say anything of the kind. So is it true? Well <clears throat> It must be true because NHS choices and the Daily Mail say it is. Um, and they both say that giving infant stimulated teenage girls increase their risk of pregnancy. I like to add, I have no shares in infant simulators. I, you know, I, I think they probably don't work, but I certainly, this trial doesn't show that. Uh, I don't have shares in it, and I don't care one way or another about them. Um, except, um, well, I mean, I suppose in some ways the trial stops us wasting money on them. We think it's like, let's have a look at what well, I won't go into the sample size because you'll let that you do that yourselves. Um, this is what so let's look at the consort diagram. So they randomized 57 schools, 29 control groups, okay, control group. Now, first thing we look at is the eligible students because these proportion are the are, is the population. All these girls, 3,150 girls compared to 2,177 girls. That is your balanced population. If you, if you include the, all those girls in an intention to treat analysis, you would get an unbiased estimate of the treatment effect. 
but they didn't do that. They then asked the girls who want to take part. There are only half in the control group want to take part. So even if it, even if you've got the same um, um, sampling proportion in both groups, that's terrible. Imagine doing it. Uh, imagine trying to publish an individually randomised controlled trial where 50% of your of your randomised sample had dropped out. They wouldn't publish it. And then we have 58% in the, in, the, in the intervention group. So we have an 8% difference. We have quite a large difference in the number of girls in the two groups. So this 8% immediately introduces selection bias over and above any selection bias that's occurring in, in, uh, on, in, in, in observable characteristics. So um, these are baseline curves. You know, you're probably taught, um, and I've been taught, and in fact I teach my students, don't ever do baseline don't do baseline comparisons. It's a meaningless test. What's the argument for doing not doing it? Oh well, we know the knowledge is true. So if you get a significant difference, what difference does it make? I'm, so I'm changing my mind on that. There's a guy called Vance Bergen who writes all articles all the time about how we should do p-value testing and baseline variables. Uh, not for the reason most people do it, check, check the randomizations work, but to look for selection bias. And I'm slowly um, gravitating to, to him. This is in the Lancet, so we don't allow p-values, but I've got my friendly statistician to do p-values for me. Let's have a look. So, does this trial look bad? We look at the total mean students, well, the numbers, proportionate difference is huge. The p-value is off the scale. If we look at this, now, um, the, these are teenage girls getting pregnant, so we can expect socio-demographic characteristics to be a high predictor of chances of getting pregnant as a teenager. And if we look at the socio-demographic p-value, God, it's just way off the scale. We look at the, so we look at the lowest uh, tenth proportion of socio-economic characteristics. We have 13% versus what is that? 5%. So in the intervention group, 13% of the girls are from the lowest 10% of socio-economic uh, status compared with only 5% of the um, of the, the, the control group. Now if we look at you know so everything else you know some of these p-values and so you might do your propensity score matching you might do your um, whatever statisticians do to try and control for observable imbalances but I can bet there's a covariance in there you could, that is not measured that you're not that you are not controlling for in your analysis. It gets rid of this horrendous bias. So, because of the recruitment bias, we are missing 266 missing. Uh, uh, we are missing 266 girls from the control group, and these are predominantly from from socioeconomic groups that are at higher rate of risk of pregnancy. So, if the pregnancy rate was 50% or greater among these missing girls, then there's no difference between the two groups. Now, it's 50% pregnancy rate likely. I did try and look for the pregnancy rate of girls in Western Australia, uh, teenage girls, as far as I could find on the internet. There's no routine data published. There is routine data published, but I don't know where. Uh, well, you, don't, you need it broken down by social status. However, I was, worked on a trial called the FNP trial, where we were randomising um, pregnant teenagers to get, to get support to try and prevent them getting pregnant again. And the pregnancy rate among that group was 66%. So it can be really quite high among some socioeconomic groups. So it's not unlikely. So 
this is the sort of calculation I think. So you have a control group, 3,150 3, eligible, uh, 2,177 eligible in the simulator group, a difference of 8.45%. So we're missing 266 girls because we multiply the, the total intention to treat, treat population of 3,150 by 8.45%, so we get 266. Um, and then we can work out, well, I'll give you the calculation, we can then work out the potential likelihood of pregnant, uh, what the pregnancy rate would have to be to make, to, to show that there's no, no um, effect of the simulator. Um, interestingly, um, if, you, if you go to the, when they did the sample size calculation, which is wrong, I mentioned that, it's wrong, um, um, we can look at, um, the one figure they quote is that the, um, they expect there to be uh, a 16.8% pregnancy rate in, in this cohort of girls. That's what the historical data says. On average, 16.8% of these girls get pregnant. That's what they use in some size calculation. Now, the pregnancy rate in the um, intervention group was 16.6%. Uh, um, no, yeah, 16, um, no, less than that. The control group was 16.6%, and the intervention group was, was um, yeah, 16.6%. So, so the intervention group was 16.6%. So the intervention group, which had the highest compliance rate, had a pregnancy rate that was equal to the historical pregnancy rate average, virtually identical. The intervention group had a lower pregnancy rate. So why would the, why would the intervention pregnancy rate be so much lower? Um, it's because of selection bias. Um, so, to summarise the cluster trial problem, a um, huge proportion of cluster trials, uh, since I've been working in this area, they were terrible um, 20 years ago. They're still terrible. Um, you still can get that. You still get like that. that baby simulator study. If you tried, you tried to publish a randomized, individual randomized controlled trial in the Lancet, who incidentally rejected my letter pointing out the problems with this trial. Uh, so I've got a nice letter sitting, sitting there. Now. At least the New England Journal of Medicine did publish it. Uh, so they are bad. Uh, in, 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 it just seems to be, I don't know why journals publish, uh, well, high profile journals publish, I mean, you should publish these trials, you should publish as a letter of warning to history that this is yet another badly designed cluster trial. But we don't publish it as if we can actually take any meaning from them. So, um, what should you do? As I said earlier, we should try and do individual randomized controlled trials as all possible. And a lot of people do cluster trials to avoid contamination. So, when I was sitting on a, one of the HTA boards, there was a spate of cluster trials, which I did my best to stop because they were, they were wanting to do cluster randomization to try and reduce um, contamination. So, you know, trial for reducing cardiac risk factors, thinking patients might talk to each other. Well, I don't know about you, when I go to my GP, if I go to my GP, it's because I'm ill. I go to GP, and there's a nice waiting room there, four or five other sick people. The last thing I do is talk to them, not because I'm particularly antisocial, which I am, but it's because I've got the lurgy, and I don't want to come out with what I've got and what they've got as well. So I sit well away from them, certainly not going to talk to them. Um, breastfeeding study, they wanted to do a cluster randomized trial. Well, anybody who's had any 
had a child knows the, the social group of young mothers is not women from their GP practice. It, te it tends to be women they met at the NCT classes. Or, uh, and that's the group that my wife had as, as a sort of group. And they came from lots of different GP practices. So it, 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 contamination is an overrated reason for using cluster randomization. So here's an example of one. They wanted to reduce, smoking, they did some kind of um, public health intervention trying to reduce smoking prevalence. And they wanted to, um, they had to randomize 2,000 participants instead of 1282 because of the clustering. So another way of looking at this is, are you going to randomize 2,000 people? Why, if we'd done an individual randomized trial instead, what could we have detected? So we could have detected a 7% reduction in smoking rate. So let's assume the true effect is a 9% reduction in smoking. But we actually saw a 7% reduction. That's because 20% of the sample were contaminated. And, th and that's assumed the contamination is as effective as being delivered by the, the, the health promotion group at the same time. So and it's, it, that's not likely to happen. In fact, as I said earlier, it's the cut point at 30%. So if you get, if you're pretty sure you can get contamination above 30%, then you are better to do cluster randomization to avoid the contamination effect. Um, so is it possible when we looked at this in 24 trials, at least a third of them we felt could be an individual randomized trial? And there's a fancy statistical technique called causal, compile average cause and effect, case analysis, which is an instrumental variable technique where you're using randomization as an instrument that can give you an um, a, a estimate that is not is an unbiased estimate of dilution effects that can measure contamination. And um, again, it, it has the same powers in ITT uh, as, a, as a ordinary analysis if the contamination is 30% or less. So if you still want to do a cluster trial, you know, do first recruit the randomized recruit before the randomization. So that infant stimulator, you could have easily done um, a cluster trial on that. So what you would do is you would approach the schools, all 57 schools before you randomize them, just as you would do in an individual randomization. You would contact the girls and their parents to get consent to go in the trial. Then once you've got consent, so if you're 3,000 odd uh, girls in the, in the in, oh, no, about 5,000 odd girls altogether, um, you might say, okay, let's 3,000 of them and their parents consent to take part. Once you've got the consent in the bag, you then randomize the schools, and those girls that are consented in the intervention schools will then get the uh, stimulators and the controlled girls. Well, eat piece of cake, and it's been banged on about for years. And in UK Beam, we could have done that. All we could have done is uh, identify all people with back pain in the practices, wrote them, asked them if they would want to take part in a study where we observe the, the severity of their back pain over time, and you know, a chunk of them would have said yes. Once we'd got there, I mean, we would have then randomized the practices and then followed them up. The shoulder pain trial, we couldn't have done that because it was an incident condition. Um, so you couldn't, so you can do it for prevalent conditions, so that the, the pregnancy, so it's, it's a condition that's going to happen, so you can recruit the girls a long time before the event occurs. Whereas if you've got a bad shoulder pain, you need it treating there and then, you can't do prevalent recruitment. So there's two approaches you could deal with. First, you can 
try and match the person doing the recruiting, so a trust trial of mental health uh, intervention to try and improve the care of patients with depression, and train the, um, the GP receptionist to identify, to speak to patients as they were coming in, to identify those that may be suffering from depression, uh, and then ask them to go to the trial before they saw the GP. And the receptionists from both sets of practices were trained in the same technique. So the hope was by, by using a uh, receptionist to do that would alleviate the, the selection bias, and it seemed to do in that particular trial. And the shoulder set trial pain, we could have, we could have done that. Would actually cast aspersions on the, the people doing the shoulder pain trial in some ways, because what they did, they, they originally proposed the MRC, this design, which I think is a really cunning design. It was a split plot design. So basically, you randomise the GP practices to groups, you, and, and the interventions to check whether treatment by a trained GP is, is better than an untrained GP. Well, we can't compare the GPs directly because these guys, as we can see on that recruitment graph, these guys are recruiting different sets of patients, recruiting more, almost certainly recruiting different sets. So what we do is the patient pitches up with shoulder pain. At this point, they're then randomised to see their GP or randomised to go and see a rheumatologist because the rheumatologists are doing the training. So you would expect if the, the GP, you want to get the GP's capability of dealing with this problem, the same as the rheumatologist. In this control group, you do the same thing, you go to a rheumatologist or GP. Now, if the GP care is the same as the rheumatologist, so in the intervention group, these guys, the, the outcomes are the same, and they're also the same in that group, there's no effect, because the, the, the GPs are as good as the rheumatologist anyway, both sets of GPs are as good as the rheumatologist, and the training's not adding anything onto it. Um, if it if it's, is, is equal, if they're still equal, but, the, but what you'd expect if the intervention was, was better, was the, uh, the GP care would be better, then it's a positive result that the, G, the, the GPs are doing, uh, the training has worked. Okay. So when is it not a problem? It's, um, so not a problem if you, if, if you say um, the allocation is unlikely to alter behaviour. So, for example, in the US, they randomised hospitals the other year to, to different paying GPs different, to, to different hours of work. So junior doctors were on, you know, had to work either on long hours or the hours were curtailed in the intervention group. So you know, they had worked on their 40, 50 hours a week instead of like 90 or And the outcome was um, mortality uh, in the hospital. And so in that case, patients are being sent to hospitals that the patients don't know the hospitals in the trial, and it's unlikely patients will get referred knowing by whoever is referring to the hospital by the knowledge, even if they knew that the, the, the doctors were being um, paid in different ways. So that's unlikely to have an effect. Similarly, if you randomise randomised staff to get compulsory flu vaccinations to try and reduce flu-related mortality among their patients, again, patients are unlikely to know that that's happening. And, and patients are unlikely to be admitted to not be admitted to hospital on the knowledge that, um, that, that uh, to do the trial. So that's unlikely to cause selection bias. It's free, it's possible, but and very unlikely. So, um, 
So something like selection bias, as it hopefully showed you, is, is a huge problem in individual randomised trials and it continues to be a problem. It, it, I think the problems worse in cluster trials uh, and journals don't seem to do it. They seem to overlook that. And I remember the last, um, I don't know people here go to the MRC method of I remember stumbling along to the uh, 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 workshop on cluster trials and was run by statisticians and all they were interested in was grinding on about um, how to deal with you know, cluster level um, techniques, frailty analysis and all this stuff that normal people like me don't understand but I was thinking it doesn't matter you know you, you ain't, it's not if you're still doing a biased cluster trial it doesn't matter which technique you use to do the analysis it isn't going to produce you an answer that's anywhere near the truth. Okay, I have to take questions.